So we'll start now. Uh, we're doing Macbeth now, and after break, we're going to Antony and Cleopatra. Uh, one thing to know is that um, it's almost certainly the case that Shakespeare was working on both plays at the same time. Um, that is Macbeth probably first and then Antony and Cleopatra, um, but he was uh, working on Antony and Cleopatra while still writing Macbeth. And you can see that, you can keep that in mind as you read Macbeth, and you can see it in Macbeth, um, partly because some of Shakespeare's reading for Antony and Cleopatra is um, uh, affecting um, some of what happens in Macbeth. Uh, for example, um, Shakespeare read in um, Plutarch, which is his main source for Antony and Cleopatra, um, how Antony's spirit was cowed by Caesars, and um, that's something that comes up in Macbeth as well. Uh, the reason that I mention it now is that, in a way, Antony and Cleopatra and Macbeth are, um, are pendants of each other. Um, they form a kind of diptych um, in the sense that both of them are about an extremely intense couple. And um, the the relationship between um, the two figures in that couple um, is explored at some length, but in very different circumstances and situations. So there's a way in which and in Cleopatra is the absolute reverse of Macbeth, the relationship between Antony and Cleopatra, the relationship between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are reversals of each other um, but their reverse, the fact that they're reversals of each other in some way is suggesting um, two ideas or two accounts of what can happen um, to a character in a certain situation depending on what happens in their relation to a partner, to an erotic partner to a person who is um, their erotic um, uh, peer um, and who they work with together. What happens when working together with that other person contributes to um, their lives as a couple and what happens when it fails to do so. Um, this in both plays, I th this will be clear in Cleopatra, but I just want to set it up now. In both plays, as in all the plays that we've been looking at, the issue is one of time. That is, both Ant and Cleopatra and Macbeth are about what it means to experience the passage of time and to experience the passage of time as something that um, you can't control, that's uncontrollable, um, and to think about what to do with the uncontrollability of the passage of time. We saw that from the first. We saw that, again, from Richard II and Richard's <coughs> great line, um, I wasted time, and now doth time waste me. Um, and the suggestion in that line, a suggestion that you also get earlier in the play when, um, when O'Merle says to Richard, bid time return, and then you won't lose your kingdom. 
The suggestion is that if you do things at the right time, you can stabilize your situation. You can establish something that will last. Um, you can establish something solid and something um, that will have continuity and will endure. And you can live and endure within that life. Um, that idea is an idea that's strong in Richard II and that a lot of Shakespearean characters want to believe. Um, they want to believe that they can, in one way or another, not be wasted by time, not have time waste them. In Antony and Cleopatra and in Macbeth, Shakespeare... Um, in the tragedies in general, and I want to look um, at a couple of earlier instances in plays we've looked at. I want to start by looking at them. But in the tragedies in general, the idea that you can somehow own time, that, you, that if you play your cards right, then time will not waste you, but time will in some way or another become the house that you build for yourself, the place that you live, the realm that you command, the thing that you are capable of um, living in, in security and safety. That idea is an idea that the tragedies are working to show the emptiness of. That was badly put. But the tragedies show that that idea is empty. Um, and the tragedies are, in one way or another, struggling with a way of experiencing time once you realize that a young belief, a belief that people have early in life, that they can own time once you realize that that belief is false. It's natural to believe when you're young that you can own time because you think you own your future. You think that what you have is however many decades of life expectancy you have plus the 10 or 15 years that you add on because it's you. Um, but um, you somehow think that that future is all to your credit. It's all money in the temporal bank. It's a little bit what... Um, um, the Merchant of Venice is about is the relationship of time and ownership. Um, that's what lending at interest is always about is the relationship of time and ownership. But when you're young, you believe that you own a future. Um, that's where Macbeth starts with a belief in his own ownership of the future, which is given to him by the prophecy. The prophecy says what his future will be, and his belief then is that he owns what the future says will come to pass. Um, in the tragedies, and we saw this as early as A Midsummer Night's Dream, where the promise of the future is a promise that we know is false. The promise of the future, remember, is that um, the issue there create ever shall be fortunate, that is, all the children who are conceived this very night will have a happy future and a happy life. 
And we know that that's not true. We know that this is the very night that Hippolyta is um, beginning to die. That is, she will be impregnated that night. She will get <coughs> pregnant. She will conceive a child. And being mortal, she will die from that child. So even in the comedy, the belief in the future is a belief um, that is going to be falsified. Um, how do we handle this in our lives? How do we handle this fact, which becomes more and more clear in our lives, that the past is gone forever, um, that everything in the past is absolutely nothing, and that the present is always disappearing, and that time is always passing. Macbeth's great speech, the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow speech, which we'll um, look at in a minute, um, is a speech which is about the unpossessibility of time. And it's an unpossessibility that Macbeth is unable to handle. But first, I want us to go back for a minute to Hamlet um, and to a speech or to a moment or to two moments that I alluded to, but that we didn't really talk about. Um, so if you have the Norton, this is page 1776, um, accidentally, but truly. Um, and um, Horatio and Hamlet are speaking. Ham this is Act 5, Scene 2, around line uh, 72. Um, and Hamlet is describing how he read the letter in which he was supposed to be executed in England and rewrote the letter so that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern would be executed and then made his way back to Denmark. Um, so he's catching Horatio and us up on everything that happened all stage. And Horatio then says at line 72, it must be shortly known to him from England what is the issue of the business there. That is, um, so a messenger is going to come soon to Claudius to say Rosencrantz and Guildenstern were executed. We have executed Rosencrantz and Guildenstern at your order. Um, that messenger actually shows up at the very end of the play. Um, just a little bit too late for this knowledge to be useful to Claudius. Um, but here's the prediction. Horatio, who is always accurate, accurately predicts that that messenger will come. And Hamlet agrees. It will be short. So Horatio, it must be shortly known to him from England. What is the issue of the business there? And Hamlet replies, it will be short. The interim's mine. The interim. That is the time between now and then. Um, so there is a time he owns. But the time he owns is not a time that he can stabilize. But it's the time that he has to do whatever he is going to do, or to experience whatever he's going to experience, or to live whatever he's going to live. Remember, excuse me, remember that this play is about Hamlet's delay um, from a little month to tis twice two months to a sea journey and a return. Um, and now He's saying all the time that's passed in this play, time equivalent to the time that's passed in Richard II, um, where Richard also leaves his country and goes on a sea journey and returns and doesn't 
do the things that he should have done to secure his own power and his own position. Um, all of that's true in Hamlet as well. Um, but Hamlet is saying now it doesn't matter if time is very short. He's not saying I wasted time and now doth time waste me. What he says is the interim is mine. No matter how short it is, the interim is mine. And he goes on, and a man's life no more than to say one. So how long is a lifetime, says Hamlet? And his answer is, it's the length of a syllable. And you should not take that as metaphorical. That's something, the metaphor is a kind of standard one, which is, oh, life is so fleeting. Um, life is like a fire fading at the close of day. Or life is like a year um, turning into autumn before you know it. Or life is like a flash in the night. Or the famous one, um, life is like a bird um, that you can see flying past a window. That's how long human life is. All of that's metaphorical. And Hamlet is certainly alluding to that metaphor. But you should also take him more literally than that. When he says a man's life is no more than to say one, what he's contradicting knowingly, certainly Shakespeare knows it, but I think Hamlet knows it as well, what he's contradicting is what Horatio has said earlier, which is that the ghost was there while one with moderate haste might tell a hundred. Remember, that's how long the ghost was there. You could count to about a hundred at a reasonably um, uh, understandable pace. Um, and so that's measuring the length of that scene for you. But Hamlet is saying, no, no one can count to 100 in life. All you can count to in life is one. That's as high as anyone can count. How do you take that seriously? You take it seriously by seeing that what he means is the only moment in life ever is the present moment. You do not possess the past because it's gone and does not exist. You do not possess the future because it hasn't come yet and doesn't exist. Even if you count one, two, three, four, five, up to 100, all you're actually doing is saying in different synonyms one, 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 up to 100. Every number, every numeral is counting to one and you can't count past one. That's the argument that Hamlet is making because there is only the present moment. The only time there is, is the present. So when he says that a man's life is no more than to say one, this is Hamlet's version of Macbeth's most famous speech. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. That is, what time consists of isn't even words chained together, it's syllables. All that we experience ever at any moment is um, what psychologists call the specious present. Um, and that is essentially the syllable that you are hearing now. 
A man's life is no more than to say one time flows or passes in single syllables and you can never possess more than one at a time. So if you want a long life and you want to die a long time from now, and I wish that for you and for all of us, it's nevertheless the case that there will be a last syllable. And that last syllable will not, when it happens, be in the future, but in the present. Because everything is always only in the present. That's what Hamlet is saying. And for him, unlike for Richard, this is, and unlike for Macbeth, although Macbeth is a trickier character in, in these terms, but for him, unlike for Richard, and also, as you'll see, unlike for Antony and Cleopatra, um, the idea that time is only, all of life is simply saying one, also means that you shouldn't need or desire anything beyond the present. Life gives you the interim. The interim is yours. The one that you can count to now is all of life. You've wasted nothing. You may have wasted two months or twice two months, but you've wasted nothing because it's still the present moment. And as long as you're alive, it's always the present moment. That's how Hamlet is thinking about time here. I suggest as strongly as I can that that's how Shakespeare is thinking about time in Sonnet 73, which we talked about in the second class. And me, thou seest the fading of such days after sunset fadeth in the west. In me thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie. <coughs> this thou perceivest, that is that it's the last moment, this thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong, to love that well, which thou must leave ere long. Um, what makes your love strong is living in the present. I also suggest as strongly as I can that this is what and why Shakespeare saw in the theater. What Shakespeare saw in the theater, what he wanted from theater. The making of the present moment intense the making of the present as intense as it can be without needing past and future to stabilize it, without needing past and future to support it. To the extent that we can be focused on the present, that for Shakespeare, that for Hamlet, is what it means to um, get our, into a relationship with time which is the only relationship where time does not waste you. So that when Hamlet says, this is now um, about 80 lines later, um, Horatio is saying, don't, don't have, actually it's about 100 lines later, um, don't, if, if you're worried about this thing um, with, with um, Laertes, don't do it. Hamlet says, Horatio says um, at around line 147 in the Norton, um, this will be uh, probably 80 lines further in any other version. Um, Horatio says, you will lose this wager, my lord. And Hamlet says, I do not think so. Since he went into France, I've been in continual practice. <coughs> I shall win at the odds. 
And then he goes on, but thou wouldst not think how all... No, uh, sorry, it should go. But thou wouldst not think how ill all's here about my heart, but it is no matter. Um, Horatio tries to stop him. Nay, good my lord. And then Hamlet says, it is but foolery, but it is such a kind of gain giving as would perhaps trouble a woman. Horatio, if your mind dislike anything, obey it. I will forestall their repair hither and say you are not fit. That is, you don't have to do it right now. Do it in the future. Move it off into the future. And Hamlet says, no, there's no point in that. Not a whit. We defy augury. That is, I don't worry about the signs of the future. Augury here means prophecy. Um, It's a particular kind of prophecy. The Norton doesn't give you this as a footnote. But augury is a particular kind of prophecy which looks at bird flight to see what will happen next. Not a whit we defy augury. There's a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. That is, bird flight. He's alluding here, as your footnote will tell you, um, to uh, the Gospels. But he's also doing something different, which is he's saying that bird flight is not a sign of the future. Those birds have their own lives. Watching birds is watching birds. There's a special providence for each and every bird. They're not symbols of a future, but they are facts of a present. There's a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. If it be not now, if it be now, tis not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. That is, all there is is to be ready for the present moment, for the moment as a present moment. So don't say for the moment that will be present, but for the moment that will be present, a moment that will only be experienced as a present moment. Then a hotly contested line, and I don't quite like the Norton's version, but it's okay. Since no man has aught of what he leaves, since you can't own the past, since no man has aught of what he leaves, what is it to leave betimes? Um, the other version in the quarto is, since no, as the footnote again tells you, is since no man of aught he leaves knows what is it to leave betimes, let be. It doesn't matter. All you know is what you know now. What you don't know in the future, you will know only as the present. All that matters is the present moment. Shakespeare is clearly thinking of this, as some of you um, will have recognized, when he has Edgar say to Gloucester in King Lear, Gloucester doesn't want to go any farther after he hears that Lear and Cordelia have lost their battle. This is, if you, you don't have to look at this, but if you want to, it's Act 5, Scene 2 of King Lear, which is 2558 of the Norton. Um, Edgar says to Gloucester, away, old man, give me thy hand, away. King Lear hath lost, he and his daughters tan. Give me thy hand, come on, he says. And Gloucester says, no farther, sir, a man may rot even here. That is, what's the point of going any farther? I may as well die here and now. 
And Edgar agrees and disagrees. That is, he agrees that there's only the present moment. But what he says is, because there's only the present moment, there's no need to treat this present as the privileged one. There's always only the present. What in ill thoughts again, he says, men must endure their going hence even as they're coming hither. Ripeness is all. Um, so Hamlet had said, the readiness is all. Um, here we have Edgar more or less repeating the line, ripeness is all. When it comes, it comes. If it be now, it will not come. If it be not now, yet it will come. Readiness or ripeness is all. Now, I point that out not so much as, as being about um, King Lear and Hamlet, although it clearly is about King Lear and Hamlet. The very idea that you would write a tragedy about someone in his 80s is an idea that even in your 80s, you're having the same experience of the length of life, which is no more than to say one, as you have at 18, as Edmund has as 18. That's how long life is. Lear thinks, Lear wants to believe at the end of the play that he has owned his life. That is, by abdicating at the end, what he's trying to say is essentially, now I've had everything and it's complete and perfected, and I therefore own it. And what the play is saying is, no, you don't. Your idea that you could own the entirety of your life and that now it's over, that idea isn't true because where you are is where you always were from start to finish in the present moment. And Lear discovers this from the start because he wants to have his, he wants to be safely completed in his life. He wants it to be over and safely finished. But you can't do that as we know from the fact that he won't give it up. I'm going to retain all the addition of the king. I am going to keep a hundred knights. I will retain the title. I want to own my entire reign and have it over and yet not have it over. Um, when I was um, in high school, um, people used to talk about, and they still do, um, how important it is to run, that runners tended to live 10 years older than non-runners, um, and that smokers tended to die 10 years um, younger than non-smokers. And uh, my reaction in high school was, I think, um, the reaction that they were counting on, which is, there'll be some time 50 or 60 years from now when um, I will triumphantly um, wave over my dead friends the fact that they smoked while I ran. And then they'll be sorry that they were having all this fun in high school while I was running and not smoking. Um, and then I said to myself, but so the way you win is to be like really old but not dead? Um, I can hardly wait. Um, 
But that is kind of the way you're supposed to think. I can hardly wait to be really old because then I will have won. Um, and, you know, just to say it rather than to think it kind of semi-consciously is to realize how ridiculous it, it is. Um, to, to do the old Jewish joke alteration of Ecclesiastes, it's better to be young, rich, and healthy than poor, sick, and old. Just so you know, that's a proverb. It's an important one. Um, that idea um, that somehow what you should do is prepare for what your experience will be in your 70s and your 80s, um, that's an idea counter to Shakespeare. Um, because if you prepare for what your experience will be in your 70s and your 80s, you're acting as though you can own your life, and you can't. Your whole life is no more than to say one. To quote the Sandman, um, uh, Morpheus' sister Death says, um, what do you get? You get what everyone else gets. You get a life. Um, and that's what you get. And what does it mean to get a life? It means counting to one. This is all subjective experience. This is all experience from the inside. So now let's turn to Macbeth um, and to um, what the situation in this strangest of Shakespearean plays is. And I do think Macbeth is a very, very strange play. I didn't teach it um, for a really long time um, because um, it is just so hard um, to get a sense of what's really going on um, or to get a sense of the depth of what's really going on. But let's start out by talking about, um, again, the radical experiment that Shakespeare undertakes here, which is that here we have a play whose main tragic figure is as evil a character as you can find in Shakespeare, um, which is to say pretty evil. So think of what he did. Think of, um, again, to see what an experimentalist Shakespeare is. Let's sum up a little bit. In Hamlet, he decided to write a revenge tragedy about a revenger who couldn't take revenge. Um, so that's a pretty interesting riff on the standard revenge tragedy. In King Lear, he decided to write a tragedy about the unbelievably sad death of someone in his 80s who's acting like an utter jerk. Um, that's a really, really hard task that he set himself, even harder than the task that he sets himself in Hamlet. Um, in Othello, which we didn't do, but which um, is a really good um, counterbalance to Hamlet as well. Um, in Othello, he writes a tragedy about a murderous fool um, who um, essentially fails to do what he should have done, which is to behave like Hamlet um, and um, be very careful before he takes any revenge. Um, and yet we're supposed to feel that Othello is a tragedy. It's again um, a hard task that Shakespeare has set himself. And now in Macbeth, he's writing a tragedy about a weak-minded person who out of his own weakness of mind commits um, a treacherous murder that goes against anything that establishes him as an admirable character. Um, and there's no, he violates 
every possible law of morality that you can violate. He violates, as he himself points out, he violates the laws of hospitality, which are the most basic moral laws between non-kin. You do not kill someone in your own house. You do not kill your worst enemy in your own house. He murders a guest. Nothing is worse than murdering a guest, except maybe murdering children, because you want to get at their parents. So he attempts to murder one child, Fleance, and he succeeds in the murder of another child, um, young Macduff. Um, he does the worst possible things a character can do. And yet somehow we're supposed to feel that this is tragedy as well. Um, and we do. It is tragedy. But it's a tragedy, interestingly enough, where the villain and the hero are the same person. Not a tragedy that, not, I mean to say, a tragedy where, oh, we're very interested in a villain who meets a sad or a, or a terrible or a terrifying end. That would be Richard III, which we didn't do. Um, but that is where the villain and the hero being the same person um, is a simple idea. Namely, the main character is a villain, um, but he goes through a lot of stuff, and that's kind of interesting. In Macbeth, it doesn't work that way. In Macbeth, the villain and the hero, or at least the main subjectivity, that is Macbeth himself, in this play, are almost separate persons. Um, what Macbeth, the character, has to endure, to quote Hamlet, I mean to quote um, Edgar, men must endure their going hence, <coughs> even as they're coming hither. What Macbeth has to endure is himself. And that's an amazing idea that Shakespeare is thinking through here. He begins thinking it through in Hamlet, that the thing that might most be the thing that makes your life unendurable, and yet you have to endure it, is yourself. That you may have to cope with being yourself. That's where you get what is sometimes called the invention of interiority in Shakespeare. The idea that what you are confronted with is your own self. And that's what Shakespeare is getting really interested in, in these tragedies and in the second half of his career, as he himself is growing older, as he himself is, like all of us, enduring the fact that he is himself. In earlier Shakespeare, um, what characters who do bad things um, but who get saved somehow or another, what they do is they make amends, or they apologize, or they realize that they had done the wrong thing, or that they misjudged, or um, that some way they had of being um, now had to change. Um, later in Shakespeare's career, later in the sequence of Shakespeare's plays, um, we could say, starting with Hamlet, um, what characters have to do is live with the fact that they are who they are and that they've done what they've done or failed to do what they've failed to do. Hamlet's soliloquies of self-analysis 
are soliloquies where he has to wonder why he's not doing what he's not doing, where his opposition is, and his opposition is himself, his own character, nothing else. No other thing is opposed to him. Macbeth is the most radical experiment in a character whose subjective experience is a kind of passivity, a kind of even victimization by his own character. It's as though what Shakespeare is thinking through here, and by saying this, what I'm about to say is another version of what I've been saying about the relation of present to past and future. It's as though what Shakespeare is thinking through here is what it means to have an experience of anything that you can experience. Of course, that's what he's been writing about and what writers have been writing about from the beginning of time, or from at least the invention of writing. Um, what it means to have experience, first-person experience, experience from the inside. But Shakespeare puts into, into the category of what you have experience of. He puts your own personality into that category as well. You experience not only what other people are, not only what Bolingbroke is, or what Gaunt is, or what O'Merle is, or um, what Mowbray is, or what Isabel is. You don't only experience what they are, but you experience your own character too, as part of the, wor the outside world that you're experiencing. This is a hard thought. Um, it's a hard thing to see because we are accustomed in real life, but especially in stories, in theater, in movies. We are accustomed to thinking of a character as integrated in a certain way. Integrated <coughs> in the sense that what it means to be a self is to have two things simultaneously. To be a perceiving mind, to be conscious, which is um, what it means to um, be a person at all, is to be conscious, um, but also to be the sum of your own characteristics. So we use the word self for both. Um, and we don't think of them as two different things. We think of them as the same thing. Um, we use the pronoun I, or we use a third or a second person pronoun to describe a conscious being who has certain characteristics. And that description of a conscious being who has certain characteristics, that's normal, that's every day. Um, our idea, which is a really deep idea in tragedy, our idea of punishment um, is an idea that what gets punished is a conscious being with certain characteristics. What gets loved when we love someone is a conscious being with certain characteristics. What gets resented when we resent someone is a conscious being with certain characteristics. This is, I'm, I'm trying to bring this out, trying to bring out the most banal and uncontroversial definition of selfhood you can imagine, which is that what someone is, 
is they have certain characteristics, plus they're a conscious being, um, plus they have first-person experience. But all those things are seamlessly integrated. That's how we feel about others, and that's how we mainly feel about ourselves. But that's not in our deepest experience, Shakespeare is saying, um, that's not our deepest experience of the world. Our deepest experience of the world is there is something within us that is purely subjective, the I that is simply the, um, the, the experience of having an I that also has certain characteristics but those characteristics are no more a part of what I really am at the deepest and most fundamental level of aming, almost to quote Genesis, um, than the color of my hair or the clothes that I wear or the city that I live in or the century that I live in or the language I speak. All of those things are appurtenances to the fact of subjectivity, to the fact of this strange, what Heidegger calls throne, T-H-R-O-W-N, throne condition, where I find myself thrown into a world. And the world I find myself thrown into is a world in which there are a lot of facts that I discover. And among those facts, I might discover um, the language that, I, that I've learned um, or the language that those around me speak, um, the history of the culture that I'm in, um, who my parents are, and so on. And I will also discover my own characteristics, um, that I'm cowardly or that I'm brave, that I'm strong or that I'm weak, that I can resist temptation or that I succumb to it that I get angry um, easily or not. Um, but all those things, um, even my own deepest emotions, are emotions that happen to me. They're mine, but not mine. And the deepest mode of subjectivity is what these things happen to and not the happening of these things. Um, Sartre says, um, very interestingly, his definition of emotion, um, which he wrote a little book on emotions, and he was very puzzled by the fact that human beings have emotions. Um, not, not feelings like fear or startlement or, um, or eagerness, which um, all mammals have probably, um, and many, many um, animals will have mammalian or not, maybe even all vertebrates. Um, but emotions like grief or longing or perdurable happiness and so on, um, the, in the interior, the internal emotions, and what Sartre said was emotions teach us that there's a core within us um, below or deeper within us than the emotions um, we're experiencing. I experience different emotions. I am therefore not the same thing as my emotions. Emotions happen to me. So what subjectivity is, is what emotions happen to. Um, that is the deepest core that Shakespeare is interested in. And so in Macbeth, 
what he does is he takes a highly emotional figure whose emotions are almost irrelevant to the tragic um, content of this play. Everyone in Macbeth is emotional. Um, Macbeth at the start more than anyone else. But at the end, Macbeth is less emotional than anyone else. One of the things that happens to Macbeth is how amazingly flat his emotional expressions become because he's no longer identified with, he no longer believes himself to be the emotional figure. Macbeth is also evil, and yet that also isn't the core fact about him. It's a fact about his character. It's a fact that you could almost say he knows about himself. He knows he wishes to do evil. He knows that he does evil. He knows that he has done evil. And yet, what makes Macbeth interesting to us, what makes Macbeth a tragic figure, is the way that these facts about him are facts not that he does, although he does do them, but facts that he experiences. Macbeth is a figure of experience. The word I would want to use is passive, but without the negative connotations of passive. Um, Macbeth experiences even his own actions. Um, he experiences them, and what we are brought to um, feel in him is the nature of that experience. It's an experience in which all facts about the world lose their importance, um, lose their positive importance, lose their meaning, lose a sense of um, possibility or of hope. But by choosing a villain, I think Shakespeare tried to do this in Lear in the form of Edgar, he tried to do it in Hamlet, in the form of Hamlet. Um, what he tried to do was give you characters who got to the point of saying the interim is mine, who got to the point of simply observing the emptiness of human experience as that itself being the great experience. Um, in Hamlet, he gives you a character who doesn't do what he's supposed to do. In Edgar, he gives you a character who, it turns out, becomes aware of his own villainous propensities, becomes aware of the way Edmund is a version of him. In Macbeth, he just gives you Edmund. So if you chart a trajectory, if you see a development or a degeneration in the same kind of pet person from Hamlet, to Edgar, to Edmund, to Macbeth, if you see them as four figures or four versions of the same figure at different points in their being thrown upon their own pure subjectivity, you'll get a sense of what it is that Shakespeare is trying to do in Macbeth. It's as though he tried to do it in Hamlet and then he went further in Edgar and Edmund but goes furthest, to the, 
furthest of all in Macbeth. Um, then what you'll see is that in Macbeth, you have a figure who is experiencing the present at every moment. And that's the experience of pure subjectivity. And a figure who talks about the past and whose backstory we're given, at least to some extent, although it's astonishing how little backstory there is to Macbeth. That's part of the point. And a figure who has promised the future and whose future we are also given by way of prediction and also by way of, um, of cutting off. Um, and that's Macbeth the hero, that's his past, and Macbeth the villain. And that idea of Macbeth, all those characteristics that make him a villain, that make him evil, all of those go with past and future. But the present experience that Macbeth is having is the experience of experience itself, the experience of the I who am experiencing rather than the character who is fully integrated. And that's why from the start, Macbeth is described in the first two acts and then more later, but just even at the start of the play, he is three times described as rapt, R-A-P-T, rapt, uh, not paying attention to what's going on around him, in a rapture, um, where the word rapt means literally, as the rapture will mean when we're all pulled out of our cars and go straight to heaven, um, the word rapt means pulled out of yourself, not the character that you are anymore, but someone who is entirely lost in his own thought. Lost in thought, not lost in plans, not lost in daydreaming, not lost in the future, but lost in his own presentness. Lost in the fact that he is thinking. Lost in the present moment. So um, places to look at this, where, where we should start is um, noticing the strangeness the Norton will tell you, all your footnotes will tell you, this, this is a very minor thing to start with, but um, it's worth starting with, that we get a lot of reports about Macbeth before we meet him. Um, Duncan and Malcolm and the captain come in, and the captain talks about, this is act one, scene two, um, what an amazing fighter Macbeth is. Um, brave Macbeth, well, he deserves that name. This is one, two, 16. Disdaining fortune with his brandished steel, which smoked with bloody execution, like Valor's minion carved out his passage till he faced the slave, that is, MacDonwald. Um, so Macbeth disdains fortune. That's Macbeth at his best. That's the first thing that we know about him, is that he disdains fortune. Um, the more he worries about fortune, which he's going to start doing, the more we see him trying to own past and future. When he disdains fortune, we see the Macbeth that we're going to see at the end of the play, the Macbeth who does not care what will happen. Um, then Ross and Angus come in. This is at line 44. Who comes here, says Duncan, 
and we are helpfully told by Malcolm, why it's the worthy Thane of Ross. Um, Lennox, what a haste looks through his eyes, so should he look, that seems to speak things strange. Ross, God save the king. Duncan, what's comes thou worthy Thane? And then Ross says, from Fife, great king, where the Norwegian banners flout the sky and fan our people cold. Norway himself, quite possibly the same Norway um, as the Norway that... Um, that um, Hamlet Sr. goes against. Norway himself, with terrible numbers, assisted by that most disloyal traitor, the Thane of Cawder, began a dismal conflict till that Bologna's bridegroom, lapped in proof, confronted him with self-comparisons, point against point, rebellious arm against arm, curbing his lavish spirit, and to conclude, the victory fell on us. Now, if you look at the footnotes, I feel sure that whatever edition you have, you will be told that Bologna's bridegroom is Macbeth. Um, does anyone have a footnote that doesn't say that? It's, mine, mine says that he imagined himself. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 it's obviously a metaphor. Um, but that the, what Ross is describing here, when he says Bologna's bridegroom um, fought against the Thane of Cawder, um, that, Bologna's, that the person named metaphorically Bologna's bridegroom is Macbeth. Do you have something different? Yeah. Okay, and what edition do you have? Folders. Yeah, so they're being careful, which is good. Um, did you think that meant Macbeth? Bologna's bridegroom? I don't really I mean, we don't know who it would be if not Macbeth. We're hearing about how brave Macbeth is, how he disdains fortune, and so on. And now we have, and then Bologna's bridegroom went against the Thane of Cawder. What, what this edition says is... Um, paraphrases that line, i.e., until Macbeth, clad in well-tested armor, <coughs> um, that is, Bologna's bridegroom lapped in proof, um, Macbeth, clad in well-tested armor. Um, and then Bologna is, yeah, the Roman goddess of war. Um, so it's obviously appropriate to Macbeth because, because Macbeth himself is married to a kind of goddess of violence, in Lady Macbeth, and that's part of the point. Um, does anyone see a problem with thinking that this is a description of Macbeth, though? Wasn't it just saying that he was fighting on a different field? Okay, first of all, he's fighting on a different field, and if you know your Scotland, and um, this play, as some of you will know, is written um, in honor of James I, King of Scotland, a King of England who had been James VI, King of Scotland. He now becomes the king of both England and Scotland, what's soon to be called the United Kingdom of England and Scotland. He unites the two kingdoms. Um, he knew his Scotland. Um, he'd lived there for quite a while. Um, those two battlefields are nowhere near each other. Um, they're about a three days ride apart. And Shakespeare knew this, the sources make it clear. So geographically, it can't be Macbeth, unless we think of Macbeth as kind of supernatural. Um, which he's sort of being described as being. He's, he's such an amazing fighter that he's here, there, and everywhere at once. In Antony and Cleopatra, Antony will be amazed at the speed of Caesar. Um, he cannot be here himself. Strange that his power should be, he says. And then a little bit later, this speed of Caesar's carries beyond belief. So this could be a way 
of exaggerating Macbeth's ability to be everywhere on the battlefield as, as a kind of um, Hong Kong movie Jackie, Jan, Jackie Chan Macbeth, um, who, who can just jump up and do somersaults and, and um, go from battlefield to battlefield really fast. It could work that way. Um, let's say, um, so let's, let's not say, well, it's geographically implausible, although it is. Um, is there any other reason to deny that Bologna's bridegroom is Macbeth? Was uh, any Macbeth wasn't aware of the fate of Condor's treachery. Yeah. This is a fight against the fate of Condor. Right. So what we have here is um, Bologna's bridegroom goes against the Thane of Cawdor, confronted him with self-comparisons. That is, um, they, uh, what does your footnote give you for self-comparisons? Again, the comparable deeds. Comparable deeds. Okay. Um, here it says, i.e. matching counter thrusts. I actually also think it means a lot of boasting. Um, that is, you think you're so great, wait till I cut your head off. Um, and that, that is um, kind, kind of stag elk roaring. Um, point against point, rebellious arm against arm, curbing his lavish spirit. That is, he managed to prevent the Thane of Quarter from winning and to conclude the victory fell on us. And then the Thane of Quarter dies very well. And then Macbeth comes in. This is um, in the next scene. And um, the witches hail them. And um, they hail Macbeth. This is at line um, uh, 46. Um, All hail Macbeth, hail to thee, Thane of Glamis, says the first witch. And then the second, all hail Macbeth, hail to thee, Thane of Cawder. And then the third witch, all hail Macbeth, that shall be king hereafter. So notice this is past, present, and future that the witches are hailing him with, as Macbeth himself will, um, will indicate when he says at line um, 70, stay, you imperfect speakers, tell me more. By Sinnel's death, I know I am Thane of Glamis. Sinnel is Macbeth's father. So yes, I am and have been Thane of Glamis. That's the ghost of Macbeth past, or the ghost of Thaneship past. By Sinnel's death, I know I am Thane of Glamis. But how of Cawder? The Thane of Cawder lives, a prosperous gentleman. And to be king stands not within the prospect of belief no more than to be Cawder. So he doesn't know that Cawder has betrayed Duncan. Um, whoever it was who defeated Cawder doesn't seem to be Macbeth. Um, so that is an odd moment. Now, there are ways of noticing that, um, that it's fine and even possible that Shakespeare meant Bologna's bridegroom to be literally Macbeth, which is that Shakespeare is aware, because his craft as a playwright is so good, that Shakespeare is aware that people don't notice cheats. That is, what you will get here about five minutes after we hear about how Bologna's bridegroom laughed, lapped in proof, defeated Cawder. Um, what you will get at the previous scene is, wow, Macbeth's amazing, plus he's Bologna's bridegroom and he defeated Cawder. Now it's five minutes later, and what we remember is that Cawder was defeated, that Duncan is angry at him, that he plans to give Macbeth the thane ship. 
Um, but we may forget how it was that Cotter was defeated. Um, so in a way, you could see this as a purely practical theatrical moment, which is that in practical terms, and Shakespeare is, is really skillful at this, um, he doesn't put consistency above economy. Um, for example, to give you an example that we didn't talk about, in Richard II, um, what happens is Gaunt dies, Richard insists on taking all his stuff, um, then he says, we're off to Ireland, and then Westmoreland and Northumberland are left on stage together, and Northumberland says, um, if you're willing for me to say something, I'm willing to say it, but I need to know how you feel about Richard, so they all agree that they'll speak freely, and then uh, Westmoreland says, um, so I hear that um, Bolingbroke is on his way back to claim um, what belongs to him um, because his father is dead. Now, if that scene is played straight, it makes no sense because Gaunt has died in that very scene. Um, so it can't be the case that Bolingbroke is coming back because his father is dead. Shakespeare doesn't care. Um, the point is no one in the audience is going to say, wait a second, that makes no sense because you're in the moment, which in a way is the point of today's lecture. You're in the moment and the moment is what counts. Um, so here what we can say is, okay, um, it was fine in the previous scene that Macbeth kills Cotter. Now for the purposes of this scene, Macbeth needs to be surprised by the accuracy of the witches. And so he doesn't know, I mean, defeats Cotter, doesn't kill him. He doesn't know that Cotter has been defeated in this scene. Um, obviously, um, if you're reading it carefully and trying to come up with consistency, you're gonna say that makes no sense. Um, but, on stage, it's a perfectly good economical way of getting the, inf the important information across scene by scene. Yeah? Could it instead be read as someone like Macduff is the one who defeats Carter, as he's the one who later defeats Macbeth? Yeah, I think you could do that. And if you're staging it, there's certainly ways you could do it. For example, you could have um, Ross, you could have Macduff on stage then, and Ross clapping Macduff on the back and saying, and then Bologna's bridegroom lapped in proof, um, or, or, or um, clapping someone else on the back. That is indicating who it is who's killed Cotter. There are lots of ways you can do it. The only way that you could do it that would be wrong, as President Nixon said, um, really would be wrong, is to have Mac Macbeth testing the witches here. That is, Macbeth is no Hamlet. If this were Hamlet, Hamlet would be testing the witches and pretending that he doesn't know that the Thane of Cawder has been defeated um, because he will now want to know how much the witches know. But that's not Macbeth. Macbeth is not a person who can think things through. Macbeth, as Lady Macbeth will say about him, is not a person who is able to um, work out ways of figuring out what other people know. Um, when he wants to know what someone else knows, he conjures them to tell him, and then he gets fooled by what they say. Um, so a wrong way to play this, although it's possible it would just be wrong, would be to have Macbeth know that he defeated Cotter. But the point is, either way, and this really is the important point, either way, either Bologna's bridegroom was not Macbeth, or Bologna's bridegroom was Macbeth, but now is no, it's no longer relevant 
that he's defeated Cotter because that's just a past part of the story. Either way, Macbeth is a person to whom things happen, not a person who makes things happen. Even when he makes things happen, the stuff that he makes happen happens off stage. Macbeth does not do things on stage. He doesn't kill Duncan on stage. He doesn't battle against Cotter or against MacDonald on stage. These are things said of him. And they may be said of him either um, because we just don't know who he is when he's off stage, and finally he comes in a completely different character from what we're expecting, or it may be, yeah, he is the person um, who was Bologna's bridegroom and killed, or and, excuse me, and defeated Cotter, but this play is written so that we forget that when he appears on stage. There's a huge disconnect between Macbeth's reputation and Macbeth. And it's not that his reputation is false. It's not that, again, to quote Othello, it's not that he's known as this amazing character, but, that, but, all, but most of those stories are untrue. Um, it's that whatever he is when he's off stage is not what he is when he's on stage. And it's the onstage version of Macbeth that Shakespeare wants us to be thinking about, including Macbeth's own experience of the disconnect between his onstage being and his past and his history and his life outside the present moment. So again, to take another famous crux in Macbeth, um, a, a speech that has bothered lots of people and that, you know, it's sort of, um, if you're a sophisticated Shakespearean, you're not bothered by it. If you're naive Shakespearean, you are bothered by it. But I think, if, I think you should be bothered by it. I think the sophisticated Shakespeareans are too quick to be above being concerned about it. Um, when Lady Macbeth says, um, this, is, uh, this is her famous um, account of her own history in Act 1, Scene 7, line, um, eh, start, start at line 48, um, Macbeth says, I dare do all that may become a man who dares do more is none. Um, become there in, in uh, that's at line 47, become there means is appropriate or fitting or shows um, a man in a good light, something becoming to manliness. Um, but it also probably does have the more literal meaning, a thing that can be absorbed by a human person as part of what they are. That is, become, don't dismiss too quickly the more literal meaning of become. Something becomes something else. I will do anything that will become me, my manly presence, my character, will become part of my character. Who dares do more is none means two things. It's a famous ambiguity. Um, there is no one who dares do more than I do, but also anyone who dares do more than I do is not a man. That is, the none there can mean does not exist or can mean is not a man. That ambiguity is the whole point of the difference between subjectivity and characteristic. 
we'll put it now. Um, or we'll just put it, put it um, in grammatical terms, because this, these originally come from <laughs> grammatical terms, as you'll remember from your reading of Aristotle's categories, um, the subject and predicate. Subject and predicate is the issue. And in Shakespeare, characters like Richard already, when Richard says, subjected thus, how can you say to me, I am a king? Richard thought that the predicate of, that he was, that being a king was a subject of the sentence. That is, King Richard is here and that King Richard is the subject. But what he discovered is, no, he, Richard, was someone whom various things were predicated of. Richard is king. Richard is not king. Richard lives with bread. Richard feels want. Richard tastes grief. Richard needs friends. All of those things are predicates. And the subject, the pure subject, is the thing of which all these things are predicated. It's the subject that is thrown into a world of predicates. I am king of England. The I is the subject. I am the grandson of Edward III. I am too young to be your father. I am a mockery king of snow. All of those things, what happens in Shakespeare is things that people thought were part of them as the subject. I, King Richard, they disconnect from huge tracts of what they thought belonged to the subject part of the sentence that summarized their lives and became part of the predicate instead. I was king, but now am unking. I believed myself a king, but straight am unkinged by Bolingbroke. I thought that I was Prince of Denmark, but no, I am the person punished with this and this with me, that I am their scourge and minister. The more predicates that can apply to you, the less predicates you own. Um, the more you reduce to the bare syllable I, or the bare syllable one. So when Macbeth says, I dare do all that may become a man, he's saying any predicate that's appropriate to a man that can somehow be, I would hope, projected into the subject. So I, Thane of Glamis, I, Thane of Cawder, I, Bologna's bridegroom, I, King of Scotland. I dare do all that may become a man who dares do more is none. He wants that to mean um, there is no man who dares do more than I, but it can also mean um, there are predicates that do not apply, that I cannot own. Who dares do more is not a man, and all I am is a man. So the way that predicate works, the is-none predicate here, the way that predicate works is a kind of very quick version of what I'm talking about, which is the reduction to bare subjectivity. So Lady Macbeth's response, what beast was it then, if it wasn't a man? 
What beast was it then that made you break this enterprise to me? Again, notice that she's saying, so when you told me that you were going to be king, and when, your murder, when you told me about your murderous thoughts against Duncan, that must have been some beast that was not you. So you told me, but it wasn't you telling me. Remember, Hamlet says the same thing about himself to Laertes. The person who did all those terrible things to you and your family wasn't Hamlet. Um, it was all predication. So what beast was it that made you break this enterprise to me? And then she disagrees. When you durst do it, then you were a man. And to be more than what you were, you would, not, you would be so much more the man if you could amass more predicates upon yourself. Nor time nor place did then adhere. So time and place, those great predicates. Um, you didn't even have those. And yet you would make both. You took charge of time and place. They have made themselves now. Now. You didn't have to do anything. They came to you. Time and place both came to you. It was the right time. The witches said you would be king. It's the right place here in our house. They have made themselves and that their fitness now does unmake you. You are no longer anything but yourself, but the bare subject that you are. And then this interesting information. I have given suck and knows how tender it is to love the babe that milks me. I would, while it was smiling in my face, have plucked my nipple from his boneless gums and dashed the brains out had I so sworn as you have done this. Now what everyone is bothered by, well there are two things everyone is bothered by in this speech. Um, one, so where, where is this child that Lady Macbeth is talking about? There's a famous essay about Macbeth saying you shouldn't ask this question um, called How Many Children Had Lady Macbeth? Um, and the answer is she only had children in this single speech in the same way that Macbeth only didn't know that the Thane of Cawder had been defeated in the speech when he's looking at the witches. Don't look for consistency. Um, but it's still an odd thing for her to say. Um, it's important to the sense of her as being unsexed that she's willing to kill her own child in this play in which the murder of children is the most heinous thing there is, the attempted murder of Fleance, the fear that um, Malcolm and Donald Bane have for their own lives and the murder of Macduff's children. All my pretty ones, did you say all? To use Macduff's best line. Um, but there's also the weirdness that she seems to be giving Macbeth information. Like, here, let me tell you something about myself. I used to nurse children. Um, and Macbeth is saying, oh, well, I didn't really know that. That's interesting. And you're telling me um, that you would have killed one of those children you nurse. Good. Um, and that should bother you. Um, Shakespeare isn't incompetent like that. He doesn't write speeches of, of really incompetent delivery of information. So why does he do it here? And I, again, I think the answer is something like this. Everything that happens in Macbeth, it's almost like a Beckett play. People are given histories moment by moment. The, the point is that what the audience is seeing is characters almost improvising with facts that 
are thrown at them as the play unfolds. It's not the case that they have histories which determine who they are. This play is amazingly without backstory. This play is amazingly about characters who are given backstory almost by surprise as it's needed and only as it's needed momentarily. How long have the Macbeths been married? We have no idea. How long, have, um, how long has Macbeth been Thane of Glamis? We have no idea. Who is Fleance's mother? We have no idea. Who are Malcolm and Donald Lane's mother? We have no idea. We got some of this in King Lear, not at all in Hamlet. In Hamlet, there's plenty of backstory. We go back 30 years to when Hamlet was a child. There's some of this um, in Lear. There's almost nothing in Macbeth, and backstory is brought in kind of like a 17th century version of Lost. Backstory is brought in whenever needed as something a character has to cope with at that moment, not something a character has already coped with. Macbeth, this is just what I want to end by saying today, Macbeth is the most present tense of plays imaginable. Everything in Macbeth happens in the present, and everything happens to a character who is not the sum of his or her own past, but only the moment of the saying one of the present, the syllable that's occurring right now. Quiz on uh, Friday.